0: This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in LA on 90.7 KPFK, talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. Later in this hour, what is to be done about Trump in the Supreme Court? We'll speak with David Cole, legal director of the ACLU. He'll explain the organization's strategy now. Also, Trump in June. Amy Willens will comment on the bad, the ugly, and the merely inexplicable. That's later in this hour. Well, first up, with Trump's next Supreme Court nomination, abortion rights are on the line. We'll review the situation with Katha Pollitt. Trump Watch starts right now. If Trump gets his Supreme Court nominee through the Senate, the constitutional right to abortion may be abolished, and 20 states are likely to outlaw abortion. Now what? For comment, we turn to Katha Pollitt, poet, essayist, award-winning columnist for the nation, and author of the book Pro Reclaiming Abortion Rights. It's out now on paperback. Katha, welcome back.
1: Hi, John. Thanks for having me on the show.
0: Well, the New York Times ran a fascinating story on page one a couple of days ago, arguing that the Supreme Court is increasingly irrelevant to the medical realities of abortion. Uh, They argued that because of new drugs and devices, it's now basically impossible to outlaw abortion. This was a piece under the byline of Michelle Obermann, she said that even in South American countries where abortion is completely banned, the practice, she says, remains commonplace. It is vastly safer than it was in the past, thanks to a revolution that has replaced back alleys with blister packs ordered online. Close quote. What is she talking about, and do you think she's right?
1: She is talking about uh, the abortion pill, Um Either misoprostol, which is a regular, is available in many countries over the counter and is uh, an, an ulcer drug, and also used to um, induce miscarriage and labor, and also um It's a sort of two-drug regimen, um, which is the, used to be called the French abortion pill. And misoprostol by itself will induce a miscarriage, I don't know, maybe 85% of the time. Um, And this has actually, um, either one or both of these drugs together, have really reduced the injury and death rate of clandestine abortion in countries like Brazil. Brazil was where they uh, figured this out, where women figured this out. Um, But now uh, Brazil has really cracked down, and you can't really get it through customs so i don't agree with the new york times i think there's a long history of people saying you know it's not going to be so bad here's some new things but the truth is yeah a lot of women will use these pills in the united states and in fact a lot of women are already doing so um... this is medical medication abortion when it's legal and a lot of people will get these pills off the internet but not everybody um, there are a lot of women now who for example um uh, it's too late. You're only supposed to use them through the first 12 weeks of pregnancy. Um, there are a lot of women or some women who will, as in Ireland, will be too sick to use them by the time, like uh, Savita Halapanavar died in Ireland because she had an incomplete miscarriage that the hospital wouldn't finish because the fetus, the unviable, doomed-to-die fetus, still had a heartbeat. And, you know, one in six hospital beds in the United States are owned by the Catholic Church. So if you're having a miscarriage in a Catholic Church, it's going to be too late for you to get abortion over the Internet. Um, so there's always going to be some people that need surgical abortion in a clinic.
0: Now, if... The worst happens, and Trump succeeds in getting uh, the Senate to uh, endorse his nominee. And if his nominee uh, and the other four Republican conservative justices vote to overturn Roe, 20 states are likely to outlaw abortion, but that means there's 30 where it will still be legal uh, in the, tw- the 20 that will outlaw it, some of those are going to have trigger laws that are going to put a ban on abortion into effect the minute the Supreme Court uh, uh, announces that Roe v. Wade has been reversed. On the other hand, uh, California and New York and Oregon sort of represent the complete opposite end of the spectrum here, Ca- the California Constitution prohibits discrimination against women who choose to terminate their pregnancy. And uh, that means that all health plans in California are required to cover both maternity services and abortion services. Uh, Oregon has similar law uh, passed in 2017, and New York has a law that requires all health insurance plans to cover Uh, medically necessary abortions without co-pays, co-insurance, or deductibles. Of course a lot of people live especially in California and New York. The ones that we are worried about are the ones who live in the 20 states where uh, not only is this not protected by law, not protected by the state constitution, but it means they will have to travel in order to get a surgical abortion to one of these states where it's legal. I I believe travel isn't always uh, easy for uh, poor people in America.
1: It's so true. Um, I want to go back, though, to that first question you asked me about uh, getting abortion pills even if abortion is banned. Yeah, you might be able to get those pills, but you can also be arrested for using them, and that has already happened to people. Um, That happened to a woman in Pennsylvania who ordered pills for her daughter. Um, It happened to Pervy Patel in Indiana, Um, And it'll happen more as, you know, it gets super illegal. (laughs) Um, So it really is not a cure-all. I mean, it's not, I mean, imagine if they made um, heart surgery illegal. A lot of people would figure out how to get heart surgery, and some people wouldn't, right? Um, And it'll be the same. Um, moving on to your second question.
0: The travel um, question. Travel, the travel, that's the other thing people say. Well, they'll just it's not going to be illegal everywhere. It'll always be legal in California, New York, and so on, and it just means yeah. getting to one of those states.
1: Yeah, and that's a big deal. Um, before before uh, Roe, when abortion was legal in New York State and a few other places, uh, women who could afford to travel to New York, um, women who could not afford to had illegal procedures. Um, And it turned out that most of the women who ended up having these illegal procedures and dying were women of color, um, because they're the poorest. They're the ones with the least resources. Um, And I think that would be the same again. Um, Right now, there are abortion funds in many, many states. There are about 70 abortion funds that belong to... The National Network of Abortion Funds. And what they do is that they raise money to help low income women pay for their procedures, travel, find a place to stay. They help them with child care. I mean, there's a lot that, you know, you can't just up and leave your life for a lot of people. Um, so uh, abortion funds do tremendous work. But this is where abortion is still legal yeah. and they can't help everybody. Um, so it's really, it's only a person who is very secure financially who can say, oh, well, people will just travel.
0: And if our listeners want to support the National Network of Abortion Funds, (NNAF), they can contribute online, I believe.
1: They can, and you can also go online and find an abortion, a local, cl- a local fund near you. There are several in California, for example.
0: I also want to complain a little bit about the issue of fake pregnancy crisis centers, which was a Supreme Court uh, um, t- subject. The end of June, the court voted 5-4 to four to overturn a California law that regulated anti-abortion crisis pregnancy centers. You want to tell us what these operations do and what their purpose is?
1: Well, what uh so called crisis pregnancy centers are is usually uh Christian proselytizing um centers where that hold themselves out to be more medical than they are. You might find people wearing white coats but they're not a doctor um, uh they'll give you an ultrasound, but um maybe they don't know how to read them they're They're not very professional um And there are a lot of them. For example, in Texas, there are ten times as many crisis pregnancy centers as there are abortion clinics. Mm. And what they basically try to do is give you a lot of lies about how dangerous abortion is. And anyway, you might have a miscarriage. Why don't you just wait? Um, They'll tell you, you know, you'll go crazy. Uh, Your boyfriend will leave you. You'll be infertile. You'll you'll get breast cancer, all this kind of stuff. Um, and they won't tell you any, They, you know, you might wander in there. They're, they're often right next door to a clinic. Uh, for example, in Hartford, Connecticut, near where I live, there is one independent um, abortion clinic, and there was a building next to it, and some Catholic organization bought it, and now it's, it's, a, it's a crisis pregnancy center. And you could easily, with some, name that's very close to that of the clinic. I mean they always have women in the title. Um, and you could easily wander into the wrong one. Um, and what they try to do is just delay you until it's too late.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So if you've just tuned in, we're speaking with Katha Pollitt about the future of abortion rights with Trump's Supreme Court. Well what the Supreme Court ruled at the end of June, five to four, was to that uh, California's law Regulating these uh, fake, uh, what shall we call them, fake pregnancy crisis centers, uh, that California could not regulate them the way this law proposed. What the law uh, was, the law required these pregnancy crisis centers to provide true information about access to birth control and abortion. Uh, And uh, this is meant to crack down on the deception and the misinformation and the absence of true information and the medically inaccurate information, all of which was aimed at discouraging uh, pregnant women from having abortions. The Supreme Court ruled five to four that uh, this was the government uh, uh, regulating speech, which is a violation of the First Amendment that you can't tell Uh, fake pregnancy crisis centers what to say um... this is another example of the way the right has as we say weaponized the first amendment however something like ten or fifteen years ago the supreme court ruled that it was okay for states to require that abortion providers also provide information about adoption to people seeking abortions so How come you can order abortion clinics to say something, but you can't order fake abortion clinics to say something? Doesn't that seem inconsistent to you?
1: It's even worse than that, because there are several states where doctors in abortion clinics are required to read to patients a whole script written by the state, their state legislature that will say things like, oh, and I have to tell you that abortion uh, could give you breast cancer, and, and you, you might be able to get child support, I mean, a whole bunch of things, but uh, some of which are completely untrue, um, like breast cancer. Um, and uh, why is it that a doctor who has an, an M.D. can be compelled to say things, but this you know, some Christian volunteer can almost pretend to be a doctor, and yet his his or her speech cannot be, uh, deter- you know, dictated at all. I don't understand this. It seems completely unfair. And this is where we get to. You know, there are four justices who really are anti-abortion, um, and then there's a swing vote,
0: and there's the retiring Justice Anthony Kennedy, yeah, who decided yeah. to retire. At a time when Trump can replace him before the Democrats gain control of the Senate, which they might do in November. So we're assuming that Trump will pick someone who will vote to overturn Roe and that that someone will be confirmed by the Senate. Of course, some of our friends say this is not inevitable, uh, especially if Susan Collins, Republican of Maine, can be persuaded to vote no on an anti-Roe nominee. She has said, sort of, that she will not vote to confirm an, a person who has a demonstrated record of opposition to Roe. What, what do you think about Susan Collins, Republican of Maine?
1: I'm very suspicious because she voted for Gorsuch, as did three Democrats, by the way. Yes. Heidi Heitkamp, um, Donnelly of Indiana, and who was that third one? Oh, Mansion of West Virginia um but anyway Susan Collins voted for him and you know Gorsuch had a very clear anti-abortion record he wrote whole books about uh you know the right to life and all that um and i think that i wouldn't she's a very weak uh, branch to hang your lantern on
0: <laughs> well our friends say that um This is that there is an opportunity that we should make the most of Susan Collins' statement on the Yak shows on TV on Sunday that she would vote no on a uh, nominee of Trump's that was demonstrably anti-abortion. Even if she left herself a lot of wiggle room, we can say you— made this pledge on TV and that this is a th- the pressure has to come from inside her state of Maine. We have to find people we yeah. know in Maine. It's not going to do any good for people in Santa Monica or people on the upper west side to write her letters. It's got to be people in Maine. Do you know anybody in Maine? I don't think I do.
1: I do. I do. Uh, and so do you. Remember our friend Beth Harvey and Jamie Kilbreth? Are
0: they, they in, live in, Maine? in Maine? Well, they live in Maine.
1: Yeah, Jamie was the uh, deputy attorney general there.
0: So we have so. to get in touch with our friends in Maine and find out what groups to support, who is doing the the leading work on this, who is doing the, you know, neighborhood organizing, who is doing the media. That's where it's going to be decided. And do we know anybody in Anchorage, Alaska where where oh another Gosh.
1: <laughs> That's now tougher. You're, uh... <laughs> no I'm pressing it. I have to go look at my rolodex on that. Uh, but um I think that, uh, you know, some people say, oh, they're not going to overturn Roe v. Wade. They a, know that that would be a huge political firestorm.
0: As a matter of fact, let me interrupt at this point to, yes. to read from the Wall Street Journal editorial page, which made exactly that argument, I think it was last weekend. They say, uh, Roe, I'm quoting, the Wall Street mm-hmm. Journal editorial page, the voice of, of um, uh, uh, Wall Street conservatism. Roe is embedded in American law. The court has reinforced the right many times. Most current conservative justices would shy away from overturning it, which would mean handing abortion law entirely to the states. There's only one exception, Clarence Thomas. He alone has made his intentions clear. Chief Justice Roberts, in particular, would not want the enormous social uproar of making abortion illegal, which would invite a massive attack on the court. And therefore, a post-Kennedy court, the Wall Street Journal says, is not likely to overturn Roe, but will probably simply uphold more state restrictions. Uh, This will not please social conservatives, but it will put U.S. law close to where the American's public opinion is, keeping abortion legal, but making it rarer than it now is, close quote, the Wall Street Journal. What do you think of that argument?
1: Well, it could be. (laughs) We don't know what they'll do. I mean, uh, certainly there are many people who would be tremendously disappointed if they didn't overturn Roe. Um, And those are the people they listen to and care about. Um, And Donald Trump has promised that he would put justices on the court that would do this. Um, And remember, too, that, you know, it's not the end. It may not be the end of the appointments he gets to make. There are still two and a half years of his... Um, presidency to go, so uh, i don 't think we can say for certain that they will overturn it, but i wouldn't be too you know sanguine about oh they 're just going to uh, accept more um,
0: restrictions
1: more restrictions because the restrictions they might accept uh, would could be almost as bad. i mean there are seven states now that have one clinic yeah. So let's say they say, "Well, um, yeah, you can uh, require, um, you know, the whole thing about hospital privileges. Yes, um, you can require that doctor. You can you can require that doctors leave in state. You can require um, the, a week waiting period. You could. Uh, um, you can ban abortion
0: after six weeks."
1: Yeah, um, or 15 weeks in, in, in Mississippi. So, you know, Mississippi has one of these places that has one clinic. Yeah. Um, so uh, it's already really hard to get an abortion in many states, and making it harder could put that one clinic or one of those two clinics out of business. Um, so um, I think we are, it, are definitely going to move to a pat, more patchwork map of abortion rights. I think that's just inevitable. I mean, these you know, these clinics are unbelievably brave, but they're also unbelievably stressed out, um, and there's only so much that you can do when the law is so against you.
0: Katha Pollitt with the bad news on abortion rights in Trump's Supreme Court. Read her at TheNation.com. Katha, thanks for the bad news.
1: Oh, thanks for having me on the show to make everybody unhappy.
0: <laughs> I'm John Weiner, live in LA on 90.7 KPFK with Trump Watch and the Trump Watch podcast. Next up, the ACLU has been fighting in court for our rights for a hundred years. What will they do now, if and when Trump gets a majority on the Supreme Court? David Cole will comment, that's in a minute, on KPFK when Trump Watch continues. <laughs> It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in LA on KPFK, streaming at kpfk.org and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Later in this hour, Amy Willens on Trump in June. But first, the ACLU in the age of Trump. For that, we turn to David Cole. He's National Legal Director of the ACLU. He also writes for the New York Review and The Nation, where he's legal affairs correspondent. David, welcome back.
2: Thanks for having me, John.
0: Well, just want to review the Supreme Court's decisions just in the last month on voting rights, starting with the uh, Ohio's law about purging the voting rolls. Uh, This was a grim result for all of us. What was the case about, and what was the argument the court majority decided on?
2: So the the case was about Ohio's practice of of purging voters from their um, voter rolls uh, if they fail to vote. Um, basically, Ohio uh, says if, uh, assumes that if you don't vote, say, in a midterm, and, and over 50% of Ohioans don't vote in a midterm, just as a matter of course, they assume that you must have moved, uh, and then they send you a card in the mail, and if you don't respond to the card and you don't vote in the next two elections, uh, they just take you off the rolls, uh, even if you're paying your taxes, even if they have records showing that you have remained a living in your residence, even if the reason you didn't vote was you didn't, weren't inspired to vote. Uh, and so we challenged this practice as a violation of the National Voter Registration Act, otherwise known as the Motor Voter Law, uh, and prevailed below. Uh, because, because let me just votes. say,
0: the Motor Voter Law prohibits kicking people off the rolls because they didn't vote.
2: Exactly. That's why we won below. And we won below with the support of the Justice Department, which for the past 20 years had taken the same consistent position, which was that this kind of practice violated the law. Uh, But uh, under Trump, the uh, Justice Department reversed its 20-year-old position, and that's a position taken by Republican and Democratic administrations alike, supported Ohio's um, uh, voter suppression tactic, Uh, And then one in the Supreme Court, five to four, with the five Republican justices uh, saying it's okay to strike to kick people off. And it's not kicking people off for failure to vote because they also sent that card in the mail. Yeah, that's a
0: great argument. We're not kicking them off because they didn't vote. We're kicking them off because
2: they didn't return the card. Right, and about 90% of the people don't return those cards. I mean, nobody even reads their mail these days, <laughs> much less return the card. So, uh, you know, it's clearly a voter suppression uh, measure, and that's why the Trump administration uh, reversed uh, uh, the, the longstanding Justice Department position on it, and I think that's why ultimately the court went with it. Um, uh, we'll see how many other states uh, now now adopt copycat uh, measures to to keep people away from the polls. It
0: applies to people who fail to vote in the next two elections. Does that take us up to November two thousand eighteen? Do you know? Was there like an election for dog catcher uh, and (laughs) (laughs) that we should count? Well, well?
2: this has been underway for for, so you know each election, a whole bunch of people are going to be taken off the rolls in Ohio, and there are a number of states that are doing somewhat similar things. A small number of states, most most are not. But uh, but what you worry about is. You know, the Republican strategy has been, for some time now, seeing the demographics of the country. Rather than shifting their position to recognize those demographics, they've been adopting a tactic of voter suppression. And this is the, the Supreme Court saying, well, here's a tactic. Go for it.
0: So the, the, the only thing that, that we can do about this is uh, door-to-door neighborhood work to get people to, to go and vote in the state of Ohio. Is right. it, have I got that
2: right? Yeah, vote like your rights depend on it. That's our that's our new motto at the ACLU.
0: Vote like your rights depend on it. Um, another uh, area that the ACLU and all the rest of us have been concerned with is partisan gerrymandering. There were a couple of appellate court decisions that made it seem like the courts were going to become more active in in uh, throwing out the more extreme versions of partisan gerrymandering, uh, it looks like right now we're not going to get any help from the courts on this.
2: Is that not right? In not in the immediate future. And the real concern is that uh, with the next appointment to the court, you might have five justices that believe that the courts can't do anything about partisan gerrymandering. That's sort of been one of the central questions for. Uh, some time now, for years, uh, actually, and, uh, Justice Kennedy, uh, voted essentially with the liberals generally to say that there is a role for courts in policing when gerrymandering becomes too partisan. He never found a a case where he, he thought it was too partisan, but he at least kept the courts open. There, there were four justices when Scalia was on the court, uh, that, that took the view that this is something that the courts just can't deal with at all. And if Gorsuch and the new Trump appointee agree with that view, you may have five votes on the court to say the courts are not going to dirty their hands by policing partisan gerrymandering and the gloves are off. Uh, And with computer technology and, and, and the amount of data that can now be collected about all of us, uh the, the the incumbents can can predict how people are going to vote with incredible accuracy and can then uh you know rig the rig the districts so that they will entrench their majorities for uh uh you know even even when the when the voters change their minds so it's a real real challenge to democracy there was a real opportunity here for the court to step in and do something cuz both Wisconsin and Maryland had engaged in pretty blatant partisan gerrymandering, and the court ultimately uh, ducked the question and sent the cases back, meaning that um, you know it'll be resolved with the new justice rather than with Justice Kennedy on the court.
0: And then there was the Janus case. We've talked about it uh, in earlier uh, shows. Here, uh, a severe blow to. Unions' ability, uh, unions representing public workers, which seems like it's going to uh, uh, weaken, seems like it was intended to weaken the the larger political mission and political activities of unions. You want to tell us a little bit about Janus?
2: Sure. Well, that's a case that that reconsidered and ultimately overruled the decision from forty years ago, that essentially um, uh, uh, struck a compromise. It said. In in public sector unions, government unions, where you have a closed shop where you have one union that wins a majority of the um, workers and then represents everybody within the uh, workforce, whether they join the union or not, those unions are required by law to um, provide services to everybody, whether they're a member of the union or not. So they have to negotiate for them, their collective bargaining, they have to Um, uh, uh, deal with their grievances and the like. And the question was, could the states require non-members, those who didn't support the union, could they require them to pay for the services they get from those unions, even if they're not members? Uh, And for 40 years, the court said yes. Um, you can't require them to pay for the union's ideological work, its advocacy on political issues, but you can require them to pay for the services that they, the unions, by law, have to provide to all uh, workers. And the Supreme Court, by a five to four decision, uh, overruled that uh, that forty that year old precedent, and uh, and essentially, um, you know, has has taken a sub- substantial. Uh, economic uh, incentive uh, out of the hands of unions, and and in fact created a kind of death spiral for public sector unions, because now you don't have to pay your dues to a union, you don't have to pay your fees, and you still get full representation, you get full uh, support through the grievance process. Why would anyone pay their dues? And so what you're likely to see is uh, the unions losing tremendous amount of support, even from their members. Uh, because you're kind of a chump if you're paying for something that no one else is paying for.
0: If you've just tuned in, we're speaking with David Cole. He's legal director of the ACLU. We're talking about uh, voting rights in the ACLU in the age of Trump. Uh, David, your book, Engines of Liberty, How Citizen Movements Succeed, is relevant to this question, because you argue the court doesn't operate in a vacuum. The court is... Responsive to citizen movements, do you see? What do you see? Are our tasks as citizens now on the voting rights front, given the uh, rulings of the last month or two, and what's likely to come in the next year or two?
2: So, I think it's our task on the voting rights front and every other civil rights and civil liberties front to uh, to engage uh, politically as citizens. To, as I said, to vote like your rights depend on it. Because look, the court is has been a conservative court it's been a majority republican appointed court since 1972 uh it will continue to be that for the foreseeable future uh, given trump's uh, uh, next pick um, but and it will be it, it, there's a real risk that it's going to move far to the right uh kennedy's who, who the person who kept it in the, roughly in the middle and he's gone and, and and trump is not likely to appoint somebody like kennedy so there's a real risk that it moves to the right But what history shows is that the court uh, cannot deviate that far from where the country is, or it loses its legitimacy. And so if the country moves to the left, uh, then I don't think, then there are real restraints on how far the court can go to the right, and there will be significant pressure on the court to moderate its, its views. And so, you know, we have to fight over, who gets appointed to the court absolutely but whoever gets appointed to the court we have to vote like our rights depend on it we have to engage politically uh, and and take the the, the threat that Trump fo- poses to civil rights and civil liberties across the board as a uh, as a kind of clarion call for coming together engaging in defense of civil liberties and civil rights and if we do that i think this Uh, We can look back on this period 10 years from now as a dark period that brought us together around a progressive view of civil rights and civil liberties, but only if we vote like our rights depend on it.
0: People wonder, what is the role of the ACLU when the Supreme Court is so hostile to basic civil rights and civil liberties? But the ACLU was founded at a time when the court was uh, pretty hostile. In fact, for most of its history, the court has not been a great defender of civil rights and civil liberties. You want to remind us a little bit about uh, about American history?
2: (laughs) Well, sure. I mean, we were founded in 1920. In 1920, the only constitutional rights that the Supreme Court was recognizing were the rights of businesses and business owners uh, to uh, strike down laws that were designed to protect workers and consumers. That is, that is it. And uh, indeed, the, super, the ACLU, when it was founded, took the view that you can never get justice from the courts. That's actually what it won, a quote from one of its first uh, legal directors, hmm. named Morris Ernst. Uh, and and they, they saw, you know, the, the real the real action was in direct action, in political action. They would file lawsuits, but mostly to demonstrate to the people that you can't rely on the courts; you have to rely on on yourselves. Over time, uh, the court that court in the twenties and thirties was way out of step with where the people were. There was the progressive era, the New Deal era, and the court was uh, in some other era. And eventually, the pressure. Uh, caused the court to shift and, and to bring itself back into the mainstream. And one of the ways it did that um, was by playing a, more, uh, a less uh, intrusive role in reviewing business, regulations of business and a more robust role in uh, uh, representing and defending the rights of individuals. And, of course, the ACLU was the principal organization bringing those cases at that time. So we then began to win cases uh, in the courts, uh, specifically on First Amendment issues, but on other issues as well, uh, and, and became more of a legal organization uh, focused on the courts. But we've, we've always been a mixed uh, organization. We've always engaged in political advocacy, uh, in, in, in a, in a, uh, a, a comms a strategy directed towards the people directly, uh, and in litigation. And, you know, that will continue to be the case uh, going forward. We've launched a grassroots uh, movement called People Power, where we encourage people to take action in defense of civil liberties and civil rights within their at, their, at the local level. Uh, check it out online, People Power uh, at the at the ACLU, and join a, a, a group because it's a great way to get involved uh, and stand up for civil liberties and civil rights. And we we, we we're not running that; we're uh, sort of uh, uh, coordinating it, um, but it's people taking action on their own on their own initiative.
0: In the three or four minutes we have left here, why don't we uh, talk about Anthony Kennedy uh, uh, a little bit. The last year, he uh, alienated so many of us by joining over uh, over and over with the Republican majority. Uh, but you've written a piece for The Nation, Why Anthony Kennedy Was a Moderating Force on the Supreme Court, that recalls his earlier work on the court. You want to remind us about that here?
2: Yeah, so sure. I mean, the thing about Kennedy Kennedy was always a conservative. He was appointed by Reagan. He's a, you know, uh, uh, but he's kind of an old, old fashioned Republican, uh, not, a, not an extremist. And he, and he had an open mind. He was open to argument, and he believed in an evolving constitution. And that set him apart from some of the kind of more rigid ideological uh, right wing conservatives like Scalia, Thomas, um, Alito, and the like. And, and as a result, he, he was often referred to as the swing justice. He sometimes voted with the conservatives, but he sometimes voted with the liberals. And in some really important cases, he was uh, the the tiebreaker uh, with the liberals to either establish important rights or to, to, to hold, hold fast to them. So it, without his vote, uh, Roe versus Wade would have been overturned, but he voted to uphold it in, in Planned Parenthood versus Casey. Without his vote... Um, Uh, affirmative action would have been ended, but in 2016, he voted with the liberals to preserve it in the case against the University of Texas. Uh, Without his vote, marriage equality would not have been recognized, but he voted and wrote the decisions five to four in uh, both the Windsor case and the Obergefell case, which established uh, marriage equality. He, in fact, wrote all of the court's. Uh, major gay rights uh, decisions. Uh, He wrote the decision striking down the death penalty for juveniles, five to four. He wrote uh, the decision for the court recognizing that um, housing discrimination cases can be pursued on a disparate impact uh, uh, theory, not requiring showing of intent, which is virtually impossible to show, again, five to four. So, you know, in very important areas, Um, He was a moderating voice. I've always been partial to him because one of my my first cases before the Supreme Court were the flag-burning cases, and we won those cases uh, five to four with (laughs) Justice Kennedy and Justice Scalia in the majority.
0: We can burn the flag as an expression of free speech, thanks to Justice Kennedy, and thanks to David Cole. He's legal director of the ACLU, author of the book Engines of Liberty, How Citizen Movements Succeed. And he's got a new piece at TheNation.com, Why Anthony Kennedy Was a Moderating Force on the Supreme Court. David Cole, thanks so much for talking with us today.
2: Always a pleasure, John.
0: I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, and this is Trump Watch. Next up, Amy Willens on Trump in June, that's in a minute, on KPFK, when Trump Watch continues. <laughs> It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK, streaming at kpfk.org and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Coming up at four tonight on KPFK, this is happening, Jerry, quickly. But first, Amy Willens, journalist and novelist, former Jerusalem correspondent for The New Yorker, longtime contributing editor at The Nation, best known for her work on Haiti, most recently, Farewell Fred Voodoo. Amy, welcome back. Thank you, John. Well, how did you like Trump in June?
3: Well, John, I'm in a ranting mood. <laughs> okay. um, you know, it was the 4th of July yesterday, as I'm sure you've noted. And uh, June was a very bad month um, leading up to our celebration of our nationhood. <laughs> uh, and, of course, the thing that depressed me and most of my friends most, and there's always some competition for event with this president, is the convincing of Anthony Kennedy to step down.
0: Step down at a time when Trump can replace, can replace him, him before the Democrats have a chance to win a majority in the Senate that might reject his nominee.
3: I have to say parents of the progressive uh, um, trends in this country are really horrified at, by this particular piece of news because they feel that it means that future generations uh, are going to have legal minds directing the country that are not going to be on the side of good.
0: This merely gives us more work to do. As some of our colleagues at America's Oldest Weekly have said, it's not a done deal. There's Susan Collins of Maine. This is something that's That's going to be decided by the voters and the citizens of Maine. It doesn't probably do much good for people in, in Santa Monica or people on the Upper West Side to write letters or or send uh, hangers to Susan Collins, as some of my <laughs> friends are doing. But if you know anyone in Maine, talk to them about how can we help. Do you know anybody I in Maine? I so
3: agree with you about people from Santa Monica going to Maine or making their voices heard in Maine. That can only hurt the cause. <laughs> Not uh, that I have anything against the good people of Santa Monica, but... Carpet begging of that kind, even of the kind <laughs> of, uh, you know, activism is not that good for the voters.
0: Well, at, at the Fourth of July party that I went to, there was one person whose sister lives in Maine. And now we're yes. all getting in touch with this. I have si-
3: relatives in Maine. <laughs> really? I know it's
0: incredible. But
3: yeah. I do. <laughs> How did
0: that happen? What did they do <laughs> they there? They
3: married. Oh, they married.
0: <laughs> well, ask them. You know, what can people in California do to help? What are the leading organizations that are organizing? Good idea. What are the most important things to do? I'll (laughs) call (laughs) Jenny. Call Jenny. Uh, And, of course, there's also Lisa Murkowski. Uh, Do we know anybody in Anchorage, Alaska?
3: Hmm.
0: That's Mm. harder. That's tougher. Maybe not. Uh, um, So it's not a done deal. You know, it's not over till it's over.
3: Uh, I was glad to hear David Cole being so positive about the possibility of, um, you know, a future that isn't as dark as the present.
0: And those of us who came to consciousness uh, in, in the wake of the Warren era have the idea of the court as our friend, our defender, our ally, for, as we just said with David Cole, for most of American history, the court was the enemy of our liberty and and our rights. and. Perhaps seems likely. We're going to go back to that era. But uh, that's the way it was for a long time. And people still fought and won a lot of things.
3: A problem is you don't want to be... Alive during that part of it. You want to be alive during yeah, the, the more part. hopeful, exciting, forward-looking part. And well, I'll see what we can do about regressive that. Regressive <laughs> part. You do that, John, <laughs> while I complain about what's going on.
0: So uh, that certainly was the most far-reaching news of right. Trump in June, was the resignation of Anthony uh, Kennedy. Uh, anything else happened in June that uh, bothered you?
3: Well, no. You know, there's the Trump era, and then there's Trump himself. So. Yeah. Yes, it bothered me in the Trump era, the purging of the Polish Supreme Court coming at the same time that I feel that my Supreme Court is being purged. (laughs) And that Trump loves Poland. He's loved Poland. He gave a great speech in Poland, ignoring the Holocaust in Poland. He has a lot in common with uh, Kaczynski of Poland. So uh, this too, I know it's unfair to blame Donald Trump for the purging of the Polish Supreme Court,
0: it's but a I do. I do.
3: Kind of, kind of, <laughs> <laughs> I'm a fiction writer as well as a journalist.
0: So there's some poetic uh, uh, element there that's hard to hard to resist when when uh, when thinking about Supreme um, Courts. Well, of course, Trump did a lot of other things uh, uh, in in June, and uh,
3: thirty days is a long time for Donald Trump. <laughs>
0: this... He doesn't
3: sit on his hands.
0: Um, of course, um, well, I don't know what's on your list. Uh, there mm-hmm. were the Supreme Court had these deci- these bad decisions. We've talked about with David Cole on voting rights. We talked with Katha about the abortion. Um, You've the covered fake, it. The <laughs> fake abortion clinics. We covered a few. We covered a few of them. Um, you know, there's the larger picture of their chipping away at Obamacare. It's interesting that they were unable to repeal Obamacare. I think that is a significant thing. Well, one
3: of the great things that, that Cole was just saying is that in a large democracy like this, if something is has a degree of popularity that cannot be effaced, it's hard to, to um, deny it. So when you see what is happening to organized labor, I believe that's because— The people have not supported organized labor the way it needed to be supported.
0: Well, and organized labor itself had lost a lot of its military, its mission, its focus. And now unions, in order to survive, will have to become more active, more present, more visible, and more of, uh, obviously, a fighter for people who they want to join. And that that can only be uh, a, a good thing.
3: So Trump is good for the unions. No,
0: <laughs> I wouldn't go that far. But the tasks, the tasks are 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 clear. Uh, what else is on this list? I wasn't there. Something ab- about uh, immigration and the border and migrant children that happened in June. You mean separations? Separation of families at the border. Wasn't that another one of Trump's? <laughs> sigh we all we just sigh what
3: a- we don't just sigh it's just horrifying you know i was thinking about all the all the retrograde actions of this president since he took office and how he's you know finalizing the death of the new deal possibly finalizing the death of reconstruction if you can go back that far um and the the separation of kids from their parents i'll get back to it in one second One of the worst things about it is not just the separation of kids from their parents, but the utter irresponsible, uh, childish lack of bookkeeping about how these kids were separated, where each kid was going, where each set of parents were going, who is related to whom. I mean, there aren't many good things I can say about the Nazis, but they kept good books. (laughs) They knew where everybody was, where they died, how they died. They didn't always tell the truth. But if you look at the records of the camps, it says... You know, my grandmother starvation, your grandmother starvation. it's and they're listed these you know two thousand eight hundred kids they couldn't figure out where they are, so that's horrible, but what it really is is this cavalier attitude toward human rights and And it's true throughout the world of the Trump administration. They don't care about human rights to any degree. Now, I've talked about human rights and how human rights can be used as a tool to, you know, make certain kinds of international policy decisions that we might not approve of. But still, you have to care about each human being. And this was a grotesque announcement of a lack of caring
0: and and i'm always looking at the bright side of things because people were so outraged because this was so intolerable to so many americans trump was forced to reverse his policy to declare that families will no longer be separated at the border that they will be interned oops i mean detained together (laughs) as families and that the, the children who were separated from their parents will be reunited. If they parents, can find them. If we can find them. Uh, so there's another example of where uh, public outrage set limits on just how bad Trump could be. So now we're going to have family detention instead of family separation. And I would like to mention that the whole system of family detention was not created by Trump. It was created by Obama. Obama created the family detention centers. And didn't he
3: then have to go back on that?
0: He wanted Obama went to court to tr- because the court's decreed that children cannot be held for more than 20 days in custody. They can be in uh, foster care or in licensed facilities for more than 20 days. Obama tried to get that extended because it's so hard to get all of the children that they're catching crossing the border and the courts refused uh, Obama's Justice Department petition and then Obama agreed to abide by the court's policies. But the whole system of these gigantic family detention centers where thousands of people are interned in Texas and the other ones in Arkansas or something, that was set up by Obama and that's what Trump is going back to now.
3: Yeah, Obama set the stage. Uh, and that's true, of course, of the idea of ruling by executive order too. I mean the the as we have said many times on this program, the country is a bit broken. and the the ways of doing business are not working
0: anymore. One other thing Trump did in June I think we need to separate. We need to separate what our sort of Republican goals since, you know, 1937. The
3: turning back of the New Deal.
0: Turning back that they would like to get rid of Social Security, they would like to get, they would like to get rid of Medicare, which passed in 1964, they would like to get rid of labor rights. Republicans have been trying to do this for, you know, since since longer than we've been alive. Uh, But Trump has done some unique things, and maybe the most unique thing was something he did in June, uh, trade war with China, the world's largest economy. Tomorrow, Friday, Trump's tariffs are going to go into effect. On... In spite of GM crying <laughs> about it. <laughs> so uh, uh, they're going to ban, uh, what, Chinese steel and, uh, uh, is it Chinese steel? And then the Chinese are going to, probably at midnight on Friday, retaliate by slapping taxes on Pork, soybeans, and corn, how is that going to go over in Iowa, for example?
3: Oh, my God. It's such a disaster, right? They're going to try and sell their goods over there, and they won't be able to sell their goods over there anymore because they simply won't be competitive. And then some serious states are going to have some serious economic problems. So, And who votes in those states, John?
0: Uh, white, old white people. Mm-hmm. Old white people who own cows and soybean fields. Some of them Republicans. Some of them. Most of them are Republican. A lot of them are Republicans. So this is an example where Trump has, has let us say, diverged from the age-old Republican goals of overturning the New Deal and set off on his own course. I mean, he did campaign saying that the the Democrats' trade deals, going back to the Clintons, had led to deindustrialization and lower wages, which is factually true. But his idea of what to do about that,
3: as usual, is Neanderthal, which is like, just go back to making it exactly as it was before things changed. There are changes that you cannot just uh, deny. Yet he wants to simply deny technological change, for example.
0: Yeah. So this seems to be an example of just nutty incompetence rather than uh, an ideological mission.
3: I don't know if it's that. I mean, I think in terms of Trump, it's nutty incompetence because he never thought about this except if there was a tariff he didn't like on something that he needed to yeah. buy or sell. Yeah. Um, so until he was running for president, he hadn't thought of this. And I think these are words put into his mouth by his advisors on the right who are kooks. Yeah. And he's in the hands of kooks and he doesn't mind it.
0: One is from UC Irvine, you know, the um, his his main China trade hawk is this guy from the business school whose name no one can remember and who uh, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll look that up and get we'll get back to you on that. Uh, I want to talk to you. We only have about four minutes left here. Trump's leading candidate for the Supreme Court is Amy Barrett. She's a left-wing nightmare, and she's usually described as a Catholic professor and mother of seven children. You know something about Amy Barrett and her seven children. I
3: know a little bit about Amy Barrett. She's a member of People of Praise, I believe is the name of the group, uh, which is a Catholic group. It's kind of schismatic, and it's culty, and uh, but but they're people of faith, so that's okay. And she has these seven kids, two of whom are Haitian adoptees, Uh, And
0: how did that happen?
3: Well, you know, I don't really know. One of them is, (laughs) I hate to talk about people in this way, one of the children seems to be pre-earthquake, a pre-earthquake selection, and the other child seems to be a post-earthquake adoptee who was three years old when, I think it's a boy, when the child was adopted. So, um, you know, it's... It, it has been easy, and then it has been hard in Haiti to adopt. Sometimes you can just come in. Someone says, this kid has no parents. It's a small child, and you can adopt the child, and the child is obviously in need. Um, but I remember very well many of the orphans I knew in Haiti who would, after knowing me for like six months or a year, say to me, oh, I'm uh, going up to visit my mother in Cape Haitian, you know, until then, he was an orphan. Now he's going to visit his mother. So some of these kids have parents somewhere, relatives somewhere. I have no idea about Amy Barrett's adoptions. I just find it, you know, a little bit Angelina-like that she has seven kids, a little bit Sarah Palin-like to all the kids as like a mark of your decency. Is it?
0: uh I think Angelina does good things in the world. <laughs> well, and you know I'm what? Not sure, and
3: and and, but to have a family that large yes. again is yes. is not good policy.
0: It is strange. The UCI professor who is Trump's leading. A trade advisor on China who is a trade hawk was Peter Navarro. He's That's con-
3: not that hard to remember, John. <laughs> I should have remembered.
0: The, we all should have remembered it. He's a guy who, let us just say, nobody at Irvine ever had any interest in him or respect from The China people always thought he was a complete kook. He ran for <laughs> office in San Diego right. and never got elected to anything. So he was a disappointed office seeker, a, a failed academic, and now... His wish has come true. Trump is imposing tariffs on China. He's a happy man. He's a happy man. Uh, closing thoughts on Trump in June. Uh, in one minute, how bad has it been? Has it ever been this bad before? Is this the worst worst we've seen of Trump yet?
3: I think when you see the, the family separations, you have to say that's the worst yeah. you can see. I mean, it's the worst we, we have seen so far. You fear when you see that kind of thing happen. That anything can happen. I mean, those are okay, they're not Americans, so it's okay whatever happens mm. to them. They're people of somewhat color, so that's okay whatever happens to them. But first they can't, you know, Americans should really reflect on this. First they come for this, then they come for that, then they come for the farmers of Iowa.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Amy Willens, Amy, thanks for coming in today. Thank you, John. Well, that's it for today's Trump Watch. I want to thank my other guest, Katha Pollitt, talked about the future of abortion in the Trump era. David Cole talked about the ACLU in the age of Trump. Thanks to our engineer, D'Angelo Jones. Thanks to our producer, Renee Reynolds. Thanks, as always, to Rye Cooter for our theme music, Mambo Sinuendo. Coming up at four tonight on KPFK, this is happening, Jerry quickly. Trump Watch returns next week at the same time on this same station with Amy Willens as our guest host and more talk about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening.